The parable that we read from Matthew was traditionally called the parable of the great assize. In old English, as you might know better than I do, an assize was a session of court. And traditionally, the parable has been seen as the grand charter of Christian charity, way back into the church fathers. In extending charity by welcoming the stranger, we are welcoming Jesus. In extending charity by nursing the sick, we are nursing Jesus, and so forth. The parable has also been a favorite of the artists of the church. I would guess that somewhere between one half and three quarters of the pre-Renaissance cathedrals in Europe and in England have a depiction somewhere on the entry facade of those on the right hand of the judge headed for heaven and those on the left headed for damnation. All the nations, that is, everybody of every nationality, all the nations are gathered for this session of court, assembled before the king who's sitting on his royal throne. When telling the parable, Jesus identifies the king in the parable as the son of man. That is, of course, himself. He told the parable shortly before his final days. The sentence immediately after the parable goes like this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So here's the situation. Just before his final humiliation and ignominious execution on a cross, Jesus told this parable about his coming kingship. Since all the nations are assembled before King Jesus, you and I are all in the crowd. Shortly, the ushers direct some people to the king's right hand and the others to his left. Everybody here present in Fitzroy Presbyterian is directed towards the king's right hand. Let's assume that. Nobody here on the left. Everybody here is one of the sheep. Nobody's one of the goats. Once things have quieted down a bit, the king says to us on his right, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Terrific news. Of course, it's pretty much what we had expected. We definitely expected it once we'd been directed, ushered to the right of the king, but we pretty much expected it anyway. We've been singing hymns to Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. We've been praying in the name of Jesus. We confess that we've been saved by Jesus' sacrifice. We love Jesus. So sure, yeah, we did expect to be blessed with an entry pass to the Father's kingdom, right? But then Jesus says something that's not only surprising but strange. The Father doesn't bless any of us for any of our acts of piety. And that's surprising. We had expected that our piety would get us a blessing. What is not only surprising but strange is the reason that he does give for blessing us. He says, when Jesus was hungry, we gave him food. When he was thirsty, we gave him something to drink. 
When he was a stranger in town, we welcomed him. When he was naked, we gave him clothes. When he was sick, when Jesus was sick, that is, we nursed him. And when Jesus was imprisoned, we visited him in prison. This, I say, is strange, really strange. Its familiarity conceals its strangeness from us. Among the people assembled before King Jesus are a few who were here on earth when he was. And some of those, but by no means all, gave him food, water, clothing, welcomed him, nursed him, visited him. Mary and Martha, for example, and Nicodemus. So they're here with us on the right of the king. But the great bulk of us here on the right never overlapped with Jesus when he was here on earth. So we didn't do any of those things for him that he says we did, that Mary, Martha, and Nicodemus did. Of course, we believe we would have, naturally, if we had the opportunity, but we didn't have the opportunity. So we're perplexed. Overjoyed to be here on the right, mind you, but perplexed by this explanation. So we asked Jesus, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothes? And look, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? King Jesus hears the perplexity in our voice, and so he gives his explanation. Just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. We're, we're to imagine that when he says this, he points to some people among us who have actually experienced poverty, sickness, rejection, imprisonment, and so forth when they were here on earth. Has our perplexity been resolved? Do we now get it? I don't know about you, but I don't. Look, we said to Jesus that we never had a chance to do for him what he says we did do for him because we weren't here on earth when he was. And he says in reply, no matter, when you welcomed, oh, I don't know, pick whatever name you want. When you, when you welcomed Jason here and gave food to Melissa, you welcomed me and gave me food. And we do remember welcoming Jason, and we do remember bringing some soup to Melissa. But now Jesus is telling us that in welcoming Jason, we were welcoming him. And in bringing soup to Melissa, we were bringing soup to him. And that is on account of treating him in this way, that the Father bestows us on us life in the Father's everlasting kingdom. So what could Jesus possibly mean? How can you welcome Jesus by feeding, by welcoming Jason? How can you give soup to Jesus by giving soup to Melissa? Begin with an issue of translation. It's an easy issue, so don't get frightened. Recall that the New Testament was written in Greek. And in the English translation that we used this morning from the New International Version, the word righteous occurred twice. The blessing has been announced and the reason given. And then our English text says that the righteous reply 
Lord, when was it I saw you hungry, and so forth. And near the end, our English text says that those on the king's left go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous enter into eternal life. Now, the Greek word translated as righteous here is dikaios, D-I-K-A-I-O-S. To the best of my knowledge, every English translation that is presently available for purchase anywhere in the English-speaking world translates that word the same way in this passage, dikaios, the righteous. The old Latin translation and every contemporary translation into one of the Romance languages, Portuguese, Spanish, French, Romanian, Italian, they all translate it with an equivalent, their equivalent of our word justice. They all do. What they say is, the just enter into eternal life. The just reply, and the just enter into eternal life. In English, we've got two words available, righteous, coming from the old German, recht, and just. And our English translators have decided that we, all of us here on the king's right, are, the ones who have, are not the ones who have acted with justice, but they've decided that we are all upright, righteous, full of rectitude. Now that Greek word, dikaios, occurs over 300 times in the New Testament. And almost always our English translators prefer to translate it as righteous, or righteousness and righteously and so forth. Not always. The Greek word was in fact sufficiently ambiguous to allow for either translation. And so you have to judge from context how it should be translated in any given case. And all of you here on the king's right can figure out context as well as Bible translators can. Look, righteousness, rectitude, uprightness is a character trait, right? Justice is a social relationship. So it's going to matter how you translate it. Rectitude is not the same as treating each other justly. Context. Consider the eighth beatitude as, as it occurs earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. In almost every English translation that I know of, the eighth beatitude reads like this utterly familiar to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The Greek word is the noun, dikaiosune. So the question to consider, question to consider is whether Jesus was blessing those who are persecuted for seeking the character trait of uprightness, rectitude, or whether he was blessing those who are persecuted for trying to secure justice in the world. I myself would definitely say that Jesus is doing the latter, blessing those who try to secure the justice in the world. Here's my reason, don't know about you. In my experience, upright people are either admired or ignored. They're rarely persecuted. Um, it's the people who seek justice who get under the skin of other people and get themselves persecuted. So I think Jesus is blessing those who are persecuted because they've been seeking justice, not because they're upright. 
So I think that's a mistranslation. Okay, back now to our passage. Is Jesus saying that we on the right hand are of good and upright character? And that's why we are entered into the Father's kingdom? Or is he saying that we have practiced justice? As I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, this passage has traditionally been interpreted as the grand charter of Christian charity. Is that the right way to understand it? Is it about charity, benevolence, mercy? Or is it about justice? I think Jesus was talking here about justice and not about charity. Coming to the aid of the poor and so forth is a matter of justice. It's not a matter of gratuitous optional charity. And to explain why I think the passage is about justice, let me now read a passage, you know it, from the book of Isaiah. In this passage, God is the speaker. Here goes. Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Did you notice that the list of the vulnerable and the downtrodden is pretty much the same in this Isaiah passage as it was in the parable of the great Assize. Isaiah cites the hungry, the oppressed, the homeless, the naked. Jesus cites the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the alien, the sick, and the imprisoned. No big difference there. And Isaiah explicitly identifies the plight of these downtrodden with injustice. Is not this the fast that I choose, says God, to loose the bonds of injustice? I've just now described these people as downtrodden. It's what scripture typically calls them, downtrodden. We typically use another metaphor, marginal, unfortunate even. Very different images. Scripture calls them downtrodden. And now recall that Jesus was among the downtrodden when he was here on earth, without a place to lay his head, the object of ridicule, executed as a criminal. When Mary, Martha, and Nicodemus welcomed Jesus, gave him a place to sleep, and so forth, they were treating him as justice requires. I think that's what we inescapably learned from bringing Isaiah into the picture. So back once more to the session of court. We're standing at the right hand of King Jesus. We understand now that he was talking about justice, not about rectitude, charity, mercy, and so forth. To turn aside from the homeless, the naked, the starving, is not to fail in gratuitous charity and rectitude, but to fail in doing justice to them. So what Jesus must mean when he says that by welcoming the stranger, we're welcoming him, and that by feeding the stranger, we're welcoming him, and so forth, what he must mean is that by treating the downtrodden with justice, we're treating Jesus with justice. By wronging the downtrodden, we're wronging Jesus. That much we now understand. 
but we're still puzzled. What's the connection between treating the least of these justly and treating Jesus justly? What's the connection between wronging the least of these and wronging Jesus? Well, maybe it's this. Early in Jesus' ministry, he attended synagogue, you remember, one Sabbath, and was invited to read scripture. And most of what Luke reports him as having read comes from Isaiah 61. Went like this. Jesus speaking now. Jesus reading in the synagogue in Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. And when asked to comment on that reading, Jesus said this utterly bold, startling thing. Jesus said that these words that he had just read from Isaiah were being fulfilled then in there, in that, in his person, in that synagogue. He was the one whom God had anointed to undo the bonds of injustice and to inaugurate God's reign of justice. So I think now it all snaps into place. You and I, Fitzroy Belfast in 2011, are latecomers in history. We weren't on earth when Jesus was. We can't do what Mary, Martha, and Nicodemus did, namely literally give Jesus food, water, place to sleep, clothing, welcome, and so forth. But we can still treat Jesus with justice or injustice, and here's why. For he was anointed to break the bonds of injustice and to bring justice. So by your and my not doing justice, we violate what he was anointed to do. And that's to wrong him, right? When you frustrate a, a frustrate when you frustrate a cause to which someone has devoted his life, you're wronging that person. That's why it is that by wronging the downtrodden, we wrong Jesus. That's why it is that by rendering justice to the downtrodden, we render justice to Jesus. And that ups the ante enormously, doesn't it? We thought we were being good and upright people by extending charity to the downtrodden out of the goodness of our hearts. And what we've now learned is that we're not extending gratuitous charity out of the goodness of our hearts. We're doing what justice requires. And we've also learned that by doing what justice requires to these, the least among these, we treat Jesus as justice requires. We, what do you want to say, enlist in his cause. I'm reminded of two sentences from John Calvin. This teaching, said Calvin, and now I quote, is to be carefully observed that no one can be injurious to his brother and sister without wounding God himself. Were this doctrine deeply fixed in our minds, we would be much more reluctant than we are to inflict injuries. Think of it. The injustices of the world are the wounds of God.